calling all movie buffs, trivia enthusiasts, and curious minds. Love movies, trivia, and free food? Then you won't want to miss GradCast's Movie Trivia Night on Wednesday, September 27th at the Grad Club in Middlesex College at Western University. Join us at 7pm for Night of Cinema-themed fun factoids and the chance to win our movie Binge Basket, as well as other cool prizes. Come with your A-game and your winning team, and whether you're a Western grad, alumni, or part of the London community, you're invited, and we hope to see you there. And welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Megan Vole. And I'm your co-host, Emily Hutchinson. And Emily, I have a question for you. It's All been right. a while. Yep. When you hear the word sandsucker, what did you think that was? <laughs> My first thought, honestly, was about sinking sand. <laughs> like I was picturing a pile of sand, like you know that kids are all afraid mm-hmm. of sinking sand. But I, I realize now that that's not what it is, not at all. And we have a guest who is actually an expert in sand suckers and the history behind them. Welcome to GradCast, Mary Baxter. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And just to start us off, Mary, do you want to tell us what your research is and what is the sand sucker panic? Okay, why don't we start with what sand suckers are? <laughs> yes, so they're not singing sand. What are they? <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I know when I first heard the term, I was just like, say what? <laughs> Is this like a creature that lives in sand? Yep. Um, sand suckers are uh, basically, they are um, dredges that uh, take up uh, sand and gravel and sediments from lake bottoms and river bottoms and river banks and and uh, beaches sometimes unfortunately in the past I uh, so I that was I got interested in uh, in them when I heard I was a reporter and I was covering the uh, erosion situation that was happening along Lake Erie a few years ago Mm -hmm. and one person that I spoke to uh, he was an expert and he uh, was talking about all the different reasons why the erosion was happening like a lot of it really had to do with high water levels and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. but he in passing just mentioned sand suckers and then there were the sand suckers (laughs) in the early kind of 1900s and I actually through a lot of the 1900s there were some boats that that operated off of places like uh, Point Pelee and Pelee Island uh, and uh, in the St. Clair River um, and many other areas of the Great Lakes and I got fascinated by this because I'm I'm thinking they're taking away the sand you know they're they're Mm -hmm. creating these environmental disasters and this has been going you know this went on a long time ago and and what has it done to you know Lake Erie so that was the big question that that I started off with and uh, as I traveled deeper into the subject I discovered uh, how uh, these boats and the loads that they carried built a lot of the cities around um, Mm. uh, Lake Erie. So cities like Detroit, like uh, Windsor, um, uh, St. Clair Gravel made its way into buildings in Chatham. uh, And so there is this incredible link between uh, this this mining, this in-lake and in-river mining activity that was going on mm-hmm. and how uh, modern infrastructure got built. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went along from there. 
Yeah, that's really yep. interesting. It's not something we mm-hmm. usually hear about at all. So they were, I understand they're taking the sand and the gravel and using it for building materials. So how much would they do that? Like how much do you need to build a whole city in Detroit? Like what? how much was it going on? Huge volumes. So I think uh, when... Um, one uh, equivalency that I worked out was something like they took maybe uh, something like 13 CN towers worth of uh, uh, sand and gravel out of uh, the St. Clair River. Just just in that one 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 river, they, they took that amount out. Hey guys, quick aside. Mary got back to us after the interview and double checked the math on that. And it turns out the number of CN towers you could build is actually closer to 600. Crazy, right? Um, these uh, these were commercial operators was what I was studying, but there was also a lot of government projects that were going on at the same time, and they were trying to reshape uh, uh, rivers such as uh, the St. Clair and the Detroit so that it would be easier to get more boats down mm-hmm. and to deepen channels and do that sort of thing. So so there's a lot of that, a lot of dredging going on. <laughs> so I'm curious because I just want to clarify this. Was this Canada and the states doing the dredging? Uh, it was Canada and and mm-hmm. the states that was doing the dredging, and uh, uh, boats would come over from uh, uh, points in the U.S. and take it out of the Canadian side, because the neat thing about uh, uh, a sand, like a lot of what it was used, was to make cement and sorry and concrete, mm-hmm. more more to make concrete, uh, but it could also be used to make glass, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, it was used in certain um, uh, methods of manufacturing, like with steel uh, so but for each use you need a different type mm-hmm. so like just just to think about it as well like we even have sand in our day-to-day lives in things like in our computers there's really you know, yeah there's sand there's sand in microchips for instance oh, oh. so that's that's how they're made because they're made of a glass right and mm. what's glass made out of Oh, sand. sand, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, like, there's all of these different uses uh, um, uh, for for this material, and I in in Canada's part, I around Point Pelee and around uh, Pelee Island, they had sand that was really good for things like making concrete and mm-hmm. for uh, making plaster too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so boats would come over from the states to to get that. At the same time, there would be other types of sand in other places that would be good for another type of use or if you wanted to get a certain kind of effect, a color effect, for instance, on the uh, sand that was in the Maumee um, Basin. So the Maumee River is, uh, it runs, um, if you know where Toledo is, Mm -hmm. it's a Lake Erie River, and just the sand that got collected there was very high in iron, so it had kind of like an orangey tint to Mm. it. So if you're walking around Toledo and you see orange buildings, chances are that uh, they were made with with sand um, from or aggregate from uh, uh, Lake Erie. That is very interesting. Okay, before we get too much (laughs) further, I need to reshape my mental image. What do these boats look like? Because I'm trying to picture what kind of machine would be like scooping up sand and making, like collecting that much sediment. Is what I I was picturing. Doesn't it it seem like it should be like from a science fiction film or something like that? And that, you know, you hear these 
huge clanking engines and yep. uh, just sort of, you know, like jaws, a mechanical yeah, jaws yeah. going, up. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get all of that sand. <laughs> yeah. But think more like vacuum cleaners. Okay. So just think like a giant vacuum cleaner. It's sucking it up and it's putting into, um, uh, they, they had purpose-built boats, but they also uh, had different kinds of boats that they would just adapt to, to that use as well. So uh, depending on the type of boat, uh, it would just basically go into into the hold. Um, uh, the purpose-built boats, they could take in both the uh, aggregate and the water, and then basically they would drain the water mm -hmm. and be able to put the different types of aggregate, they'd be able to grade them right in the boat and then oh. just take them right back into shore. Wow. I guess my question is more ecological. I'm not a biology student, but this was immediately something that came up to me. Was there any ecological impact to dredging? And if so, what was it? I imagine there has to be just how major of it would it have been. What's so amazing about this this story with the sandsuckers is that at the time people thought that it had a lot to do with erosion, and it did. It did have like you you could see where the sandsuckers operated. Uh, uh, the sand spit at Point Pelee shrank. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a huge sand spit at um, um, Pelee Island. It also shrank. They haven't really recovered. Uh, oh. They they still will build up their length somewhat, but mm -hmm. um, some of the, the 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 landform is just simply gone. Right? So that's like the part that juts out from the water mm -hmm. or from the land into the water, a big piece yeah. of sand? Okay. Yeah, if you've been to Point Pelee. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Well, one time that, that went, uh, oh, I can't remember. There's some early records, I think, that mentioned that it went about four kilometers. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't go that far now, does no, it? No, yeah. not even And the close. same same thing with uh, Pelee Island. It mm -hmm. went for, for a really long distance. And the other thing about it is that um, sand circulates kind of near the shores in, in lakes and in rivers. And But I, I, I just talked about what happens in lakes. And it gets taken from one place. So it might be from like a, a one of the, the huge sand banks that's along Lake Erie. And it gets circulated, circulated. And then these, these kind of nearshore currents will drop it off at places. And that's how a lot of our beaches get built or enhanced and, and, and that sort of thing. So when you're actually taking sand out of that, or if you're changing the configuration mm -hmm. of that that area where the water meets land, then you're changing how the currents operate. You're changing mm -hmm. um, how I, how much sand is getting deposited and where. So uh, back in the day when a lot of this was happening, people were really concerned that uh, uh, the disappearance of these landforms was contributing to uh, more erosion and a systemic erosion in mm -hmm. the lake. Um, and even to this day, it's it's believed that there are areas in the lake where it's, it's had this impact. Mm -hmm. But the challenge is, is that uh, we don't really know. Nobody measured what the how the lake performed oh. before this happened. Mm -hmm. So nobody really knows how much of an impact did this really make. That said, it was a question because of this activity. It raised a big question in people's minds about it, and they kept on researching for for years and years and years. Uh, um, even up to the present to try to determine what was the impact. Mm -hmm. And with that, uh, it, it kind of contributed to a new way of looking at uh, uh, looking at the, the lake or looking at a water body. Because when this was first happening, people divided kind of 
water from water bottom okay mm -hmm. so it didn't really think they didn't really think oh there's much of an interaction right. other than you know of course there's going to be something to do with the shape so it's going to have something to do with uh, how high a lake is or how fast a flow is something like that mm -hmm. but they wouldn't think for instance that the chemistry that was happening in the lake bottom might interact with the water above it and create a certain environment that's conducive to life of, mm. of uh, certain elements so on and so forth because they kept asking this question of what's going on and is this related to erosion that's happening around our shorelines, um, it was one of the factors that helped people to really shift from that uh, uh, kind of uh, a lake in pieces mm -hmm. to a more holistic view of mm -hmm. the, the whole lake ecology. That's really interesting. And so I am actually in biology. You are. I was yeah. I was stealing your question there. No, that's okay because you haven't really stolen it yet. But what does this do to the animals if you know because you're talking mm -hmm. about the interconnectedness between the bottom and the lake and the shore and they're all connected. But what about the animals that are living there? Do they know or do you know if there's there's been much of an impact on them? Well, I th I'm not sure how much research we've yeah. done into that issue. I uh, uh, they did do some some research in the 1970s. To to see what kind of uh, uh, impact there might be on bottom-dwelling uh, creatures. But mm -hmm. like a lot of the activities that went on in the late 1800s and early mm -hmm. 1900s with industrialism and uh, uh, resource mining, mm -hmm. um, like with logging, um, a lot of the debris from uh, sawmills uh, ended up in rivers mm -hmm. and they... Uh, uh, they destroyed spawning grounds, fish spawning right. grounds. Yeah. So of course there would there was the concern um, about that with mm -hmm. with dredging as well. And then in more recent years, another concern to do with um, uh, with this with this type of dredging because a lot of harbor clearing, um, picking up sediment from harbors and then dropping it deeper in the lake, yeah. uh, there arose a concern that you, you were putting actual contaminants mm -hmm. um, into into uh, deeper in the lake and what was that doing too. Right. No, yeah, it's a really interesting point because animals use the bottom, right? Like that's part of their habitat. And if it's all just getting scooped away or mixed up, it's going to impact them a lot. Do you know anything? Uh, one more animal question, I promise, but about <laughs> invasive species that, that could happen? Because if, if you're opening up waterways or dredging and making things deeper, there's going to be mixing between different habitats. Do you know if there's any proven or linked back to that invasive species? There's been a lot of work done on, on that uh, in terms of a lot of the government work that was done to uh, create canals and to create waterways and, mm -hmm. and the uh, St. Lawrence Great Lakes waterway. So we saw from that, uh, we saw eels, for instance, yeah. uh, that, that migrated, uh, I think what they, it was thought that they were in up to Lake Ontario, but then when they did uh, the, the, the Welland Canal and yes. the other canals, yeah. Um, they were able to use those to uh, migrate into Lake Erie mm -hmm. and into the the other lakes. So and and yeah, that's all dredging. Yeah. <laughs> Canals is dredging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these are, I guess, problems we can see today too uh, that were stemming from something that happened a century ago. We're dealing with a lake that could be very yeah. operating very differently 
from what it was uh, back before this activity happened. And in fact, uh, uh, we see with Pelee Island uh, that it's it's dealing with, uh, each year, it's dealing with incredible erosion. I mean, at one time it had great beaches. It also mm -hmm. had um, um, protective, uh, uh, not sand spits, um, sandbars and, mm -hmm. and, and stuff to, to help protect what was there. Mm -hmm. What I find so, so kind of, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's it's so interesting about this topic to me, though. But these dredges that were used to take away sand were also used to do things like uh, create channels in order to drain marshes, mm. to create mm. farmland. And so, you know, in, in a place like Pelee Island, um, a lot of it actually used to be marsh. Mm -hmm. And they went in there, they drained it using dredges and uh, other equipment, of course, too. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they built up dikes around mm -hmm. to protect it. They had pumps to pump out the water when it got too much. And this was all like so we could have our farmland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, along came the sand suckers, and they saw this beautiful sand that was, <laughs> you know, uh, at the, on this island, or mm -hmm. at least in its, in its southernmost point. And they went, oh, good, let's take this away. <laughs> so then that was actually forming protection for mm -hmm. uh, their, their dike system that kept that protected mm -hmm. their farmland. So it's like these two industrial uses that actually came into conflict with each other. Yeah, and speaking of conflict, was there any conflict between the activity of the sand suckers and those regulating them and the people who were living yes. there? Can you talk about that? Like, did the communities just say, "Okay, take our sand, off you go," or <laughs> I'm guessing not? No, they were they were uh, very distressed and not really knowing what to do. They appealed to uh, their their governments. Uh, farmers appealed to uh, their their municipal governments. Municipal governments appealed to their county governments. County governments appealed to the <laughs> provincial government mm -hmm. and to the uh, federal government as well at the time so there was uh, um, a lot of that going on back and forth and um, I finally uh, what happened was I the, the the provincial government at the time and I'm talking about in the uh, uh, just after the the First World War mm -hmm. so this is like 1918 1919 they go oh yeah I guess well we're gonna have to do something about this and mm -hmm. a lot of people attributed it to the American boats coming in the yeah. you know the, the greedy industrialist American <laughs> boats whether or not that was true or not because they were also taking it mm -hmm. Um, the problem was, was that they were, you know, threatening the livelihood of a lot of farmland in that area because a lot of the uh, farmland in deep southwestern Ontario is protected from the lake's activity by diking systems. So, so this was like, we're not talking one or two farmers here. We're talking, mm -hmm. you know, several hundred farmers that were worried. So finally, the province said, okay, well, what are we going to do here? Let's take them to court. So they took him to court. That didn't work. <laughs> so then they uh, thought, okay, let's pass a law. They already had a Beach Protection Act, was what it was called, and said, let's toughen up this law. We'll make we'll make these boats take on licenses, so we can keep a better control over their activities. And then also what that means. At uh, Pelee Island, one of the challenges was was that uh, the the companies that were taking sand away from the uh, the southernmost point, which is called Fish Fish Point, mm -hmm. they actually owned the point. Mm -hmm. So because they owned it, 
the government couldn't tell them what to do with their own property. So they're like, okay, how do we <laughs> fix this? <laughs> so they uh, said, oh, licenses. And then that way we'll license the boats and uh, we get control again over who can operate where. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what they did. Well, then, of course, the um, the um, American companies that were involved in this just flipped out. They were really upset. They called their their congressmen. Um, well, they uh, would have telegraphed their congressmen back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, then there was they got the the federal U.S. government involved, and they started <laughs> writing angry letter campaigns to. Uh, to uh, Canadian officials saying, you've got to basically keep Ontario under control here. We need this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, because we're building our cities, you know, and this is this is really important stuff, and this is really good stuff that we've got. And so it kept going. <laughs> did it strain international relations, this, this escalation? <laughs> yes, it did strain international relations. Um, at the time, there were a lot of issues uh, that um, Canadians and Americans were, were trying to figure out how to share, and especially in the Great Lakes area, because... Um, not too long before that, they were also trying to uh, figure out how to share electricity generated from Niagara Falls. Mm. And uh, um, Americans saw a great opportunity on the Canadian side of the falls to be able to generate that that electricity they oh. built. Um, so, so they got involved and they, they kind of financed it. And then Canadians are going... Um, well, um, yeah, we need infrastructure on our side because we're at an, in the modern age. We're supposed to industrialize. We're supposed to be able to have all these things, but we can't do this if we don't have any electricity. Mm-hmm. And the Americans have got our electricity. But it was, um, they they worked really hard on uh, trying to work out the agreements uh, and came up with some groundbreaking treaties. For me, I'm, I'm going back to this... Um idea you were alluding to about Americanism and the greedy uh, corporate industrialists that this this idea seemed to be perforating um, throughout this narrative that you've told us. And I'm just, I'm curious, it took a while for the Canadian government to do anything about the dredging activities. So was there any lobbying activity maybe before the, the dredging that would have gone on? Because sand was a sought after commodity. It was a really hot commodity. And, you know, putting regulations on that, I... I don't think it would go that easily. So I'm wondering if this um, time it took for them, this long period of time for them to do anything about it, would lobbying have anything to do with that or just lack of knowledge? I think lobbying and also a very pragmatic look, mm-hmm. just just as you've mentioned, everybody was trying to build their cities, they were trying to build roads, they were trying to build a whole bunch of things and they really, they really needed these materials. And um, there were American companies that supplied um, Canadian projects as well mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah I, I would agree with you that there there was likely behind the scenes a lot of lobbying um, there was certainly when it escalated into threatening um, <laughs> yeah. I, there was a lot of kind of hand wringing and you can't do this to the to us and we're going to take you to court sort of mm-hmm. things that were, were coming from from the states yeah 
It's really interesting to think about this uh, in the context of like climate change and, and protecting habitats. But I'm guessing that that's not something that was forefront in their minds back then. Like we didn't. Yeah. The environment is a big deal now. But I think back then, like you're right, it was industrial. They're still trying to do all this. Uh, can you speak a little bit about where like the name panic comes from? Like it's the sand sucker panic. Because yes. when I first read this, I'm like, oh, they're destroying the habitat. That's the panic. That's what I should panic about. But it's, that's not really what it was. They were destroying the farmland. Yeah. And then the other thing was was that they they were taking away our ability to 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 grow as mm-hmm. as a as a country uh, because this is what happened was first it was the farmers and then the communities got involved because they um, in deep southwestern Ontario there's no gravel pits or at least at that time there were very few gravel pits mm-hmm. so because of that um, they really relied on places like the St. Clair River in mm-hmm. order to get their gravel and to get their sand and um, if it all disappeared if it kept going at the pace it was going, uh, these municipalities really feared that they wouldn't have any place to um, get, you know, cheap, good, cheap gravel. Mm -hmm. Because this stuff, the um, upper level governments made sure that it was cheap to the municipalities. Mm -hmm. Um, So otherwise, you know, so for instance, a delivery from Sarnia to uh, Chatham would have cost uh, 70 cents for a cubic yard. Mm-hmm. And don't ask me what a cubic yard is, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's big. Yeah, yeah it sounds big. <laughs> um, and at, uh, when it was kind of getting the, 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 the fears and the worries about and the panic about this was getting to its height, they were talking about having to ship it in from places like uh, Cape Herd which is Mm -hmm. right on the tip of the Bruce Peninsula for like $2.50 for a cubic yard. So, you know, how can you grow with that kind of, uh, you know, difference in in expense? I didn't know about the sandsucker panic. It's not something that was really taught in history, um, in Canadian history in school, and not really something I've read across or come across either in in my reading. Um, So I'm just, I'm curious why maybe... Why is this not talked about more? Why was this particular historic situation not brought into Canadian history more? It it seems very major to me. Um, so that's why I asked that question. I I think that uh, there there might be a couple of reasons why I'm guessing now. But uh, one is is that I think in in terms of the looking at the history of this, uh, people were more focused on issues that affected broader areas. Mm-hmm. So they were they were really concerned about uh, what was happening in the lumber in industry, mm-hmm. uh, and again something like hydroelectricity was a, a big issue, and in Ontario it was a big issue right across the the province. Uh, they tended to see uh, this this whole issue with sandsuckers and what was happening at Point Pelee and at uh, Pelee Island to be very specific and local. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is, is that they were actually taking these materials from other places in the lake. The greatest activity happened in Lake Erie and, and throughout much of the lake. But uh, there, was also, uh, there was also dredging, commercial dredging that took place in Lake Ontario, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan. So it actually... It, but it got dis- disguised somehow as a regional issue. Mm. So I think that's one of the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other one is is that I we take our sand for granted. 
for granted. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. That was a good pun. I'm sorry. <laughs> Very nice. I want to just ask now about your your research methods or how you're you're finding out all these mm-hmm. things. What kind of sources did you use to get all this information? Well, I think the the, the biggest one for me was to find out that this ex- activity existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once you know it exists, it's actually very easy to get information because there's a lot of uh, writing that happened in newspapers about this uh, uh, on both sides of the border. Um, uh, there's a lot of archives uh, that have uh, material on this. So the Ontario Archives has a whole bunch of files on it. The uh, um, the Canadian Archives does. There's a lot of stuff online. It does take a little bit of time to kind of pick through to figure out exactly how to find it, mm-hmm. but it's there. Did you get to visit the sites <laughs> and, and go and see what there was to see? So, yeah, I've been along the St. Clair River. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing about the St. Clair River is that it's all, it's, um, its banks are all basically hardened now. Uh-huh. And by hardened, what I mean is that uh, they, they've got protections all along there so that they don't lose any, any land, which is another problem that we don't have time enough to go oh, into here yeah. today. <laughs> but I, um, I also went to Point Pelee. And what so struck me about Point Pelee is that, you know, here is this landform that just had an incredible impact on um, our, our, our cities today, our infrastructure that we still use today. And yet there's nothing really there. Um, if you're just out walking on the path and going to see the point, there's nothing there that okay. talks about it and talks about its relationship to all of these cities. Mm-hmm. So we need more attention on this. Yeah, I think so. This podcast a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that does lead into a question that I, I was going to ask if we had some time, some leftover time. But if people wanted to learn more about this, uh, the Sand Sucker Panic, like, could you recommend a book or a resource that would give them a good overview, um, introduction to it? Well, <laughs> other than my, my thesis, I think that that pulls together uh, uh, about um, commercial dredging in, in that specific area. I, it is defended, it is online, so it is within the repository. Um, there's also been a bit of work starting in, in the States. Uh, there's, there's some historical societies, so like the, De- the Detroit uh, Marine Historical Society is a great place to, to start. Uh, there are some excellent historians there that have... Uh, written about the boats and some of these activities. Um, do we have time for one more question? I don't think we do, actually. No? Oh, no, right our, our producer <laughs> is signaling to us. So thank you so much for coming on GradCast. It's been awesome to hear about yes, your work. Yes, thank you. Well, thanks very much again for the opportunity. It's so much fun. You c- I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> I still have a list of questions I'd like to ask, but um, I will... Sorry, one more question then. Do you have any social media you'd like to shout out if people want to see more about your research? Uh, you can find me at Mary B. Word. So with that, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Megan Vol, and my co-host was Emily Hutchinson, and we've been speaking with Mary Baxter. And this episode was produced by our brand new t- producer, Susie Lee. <laughs> Um, if you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western at 94.9 FM. And you can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.